There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You're on Team Human, where we challenge the operating systems driving our society, reveal the embedded codes, and share strategies for sustainable living, economic justice, and preservation of the quirky nooks and crannies that make people so much more than mere programs. This is where the conscious beats the automatic, an intervention by people on behalf of people. Playing for Team Human today, Yuho Makanen, founder of ShareTribe. What we hope to see is that more of these smaller organizations would actually be owned and governed by the people who are working through them. Yuho will share the vision of a sharing economy where people share value with one another instead of simply watching it get siphoned off by the likes of Uber or Airbnb. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. I've got some practical news for everybody. We're launching our Team Human Live series. No, we didn't do it in May, but we will be starting in June, Thursday, June 21st at the Alchemist's Kitchen in New York City. We're doing a trial run of Team Human Live for a small audience of maybe 30 or 40 people. You're welcome to come. I think we're talking 10 bucks to uh, come in or free if you are a member of Team Human through our Team Human Patreon uh, subscription. And we're going to have a guest, Mark Filippi, who's the founder of Soma Space, a fascinating guy and the person who really taught me about the lunar phases and how neurotransmitters change in our bodies and what week is good for what activity. And then we're doing another Team Human Live in London on July 9th with Rupert Sheldrake and Pat Cadigan. I'm really excited for that event, two of my great uh, heroes, really, of this lifetime. And you're all welcome to come to that. It's really the beginning of what I hope is a global tour 
of Team Human Live events where we can uh, meet the people who already listen to the show and maybe gather some of your friends onto the team. So look forward to a little place on the teamhuman.fm website where you can sign up and get tickets or make reservations for those events. We've got a very concrete show for you today, so I feel like I have room to share a more abstract-than-usual prologue with you. This is the true and biggest challenge I'm facing right now as a writer and thinker and host. It really comes down to myth. Do we need a new myth, or do we need to dispense with mythology altogether? It's a question I've been asking myself in one way or another, um, both honestly and deludedly, really, uh, since I was doing theater in high school and college. My, my problem with theater was always this Aristotelian arc that a play was supposed to take, this beginning, middle, and an end, this crisis, climax, and reversal that was always a place for the playwright, for the author, to insert some uh, new idea. But it always depended on the mythology of a tragic hero, that you have this big journey, and then a moment of recognition, and then things kind of reverse, and you get a, a catharsis and learning, that you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger, that your tragic flaw ends up you know, being the, the final trigger, the final uh, wheel of, of a reversal. And it just didn't make sense to me because it's just not the way people live. You don't really reach these places and go, aha, now I see. Or even if you do, that thing you see and get, you realize two weeks later was just another illusion that life works differently than this big mythological structure, this big structure that we've talked about since St. Joseph Campbell's books about story. In my books and graphic novels, I usually tried crashing a set of myths, but then offering some alternative at the end. So I might smash the myth of apocalypse and salvation, but then offer some sort of consensus progressive collaboration as an alternative. Or I'd smash the top-down, hand-me-down truths of our oppressors, but then offer the alternative of collective reality creation. Or I'll surrender the authority of the storyteller and then hand the pencil, literally have a character handing a pencil to the reader at the end of the comic. Or I'll smash the idolatry that has infected Judaism and then promote a new provisional mythology of communal sense-making. Or I'll crash the cynically devised mythologies of capitalism and corporatism, but then offer a new myth of circular economics and, and sharing, or I'll crash the myth of the survival of the fittest individual, but then offer a new evolutionary history of interspecies cooperation. The justification for doing this, I guess, is that better myths, like, like better cultural operating systems, should yield better results. But what if they're all myths? And as a result of being mythology, all ultimately 
destructive. I mean, even science falls into the trap. We get some idea that, say, agriculture was a wrong turn, and from then on, we see all this evidence that hunter-gatherers worked fewer hours than we did after the invention of agriculture. And I even included this fact, the fact that hunter-gatherers worked fewer hours than the people immediately following in the era of agriculture, and I included it because it was even in a a science book by this guy Robert Sapolsky, a a smart guy, a a neuroscientist who wrote this kind of uh, sociological history of humanity. And then I realized after reading others that this is not really based on science. I mean, there's science tidbits in it, but it's it's assembled because of a myth. It's assembled because of, of a story. People and institutions, they come to me all the time to help develop a new myth for the 21st century. These folks who have read Campbell or read Young and understand myths and archetypes and understand that the archetypes we've been using up till now don't really work in a digital age. But mythology itself, it feels more like the product of, you know, the the television media environment. It's more about imagery and projection and hallucination. The digital media environment, if we're really in one, is really about fact. It's about memory. Everything's happening in memory. It all takes place on on memory chips. And that's why we're fighting less over who believes what these days than what really happened. Where did humans come from? Are things getting better or worse? We're not arguing over Bible mythology. We're arguing over human evolution. The myths are no longer adequate to this task. So I'm wondering if Team Human's job may be to find ways of working together without an overriding mythological construct. You know, just doing it because it's it's simply better on an experiential level and on a practical scientific one. Growing food in a certain way, not because it's connected to Mother Gaia, but because it keeps the soil alive. Not a metaphor, but a reality. You know, and if we are destined to think and communicate in myths, if that's our nature, then we can at least accept that we all use stories to understand the world. Understanding another person means listening to their story and maybe sharing one's own, but accepting that both are just stories. They're ways of connecting the dots, the moments of human experience, creating sense, creating continuity and purpose, even though there may ultimately be none. Or it may be so systemic and connected that the path of cause and effect and cause and effect that we each trace through this big giant thing we're living in is just one way through the maze. We can still listen to one another's perceptions and sense-making and then gain some sympathy for why they're thinking and acting the way they do without necessarily believing any of it. And maybe more importantly, without trying to get them to exchange their mythology for hours. So what's Team Human's job? To come up with a new myth or to break them all? Or whatever we decide, it should be a conscious choice. 
We're Team Human, coming to you alive from the Basement Media Squad, home to the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at CUNY Queens College. I'm Eleanor Seta, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Ghislaine Boddington, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Brian Keating, and I'm on Team Human. I'm Molly Wright Steenson, and I'm on Team Human. My name is David Peskovitz, and I'm on Team Human. Joining us today to break some of the mythology around the sharing economy, Yuho Makonen, founder of ShareTribe. You guys are are doing some interesting things. It 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 feels to me in some ways like ShareTribe is part of a transition from one economy to another. You know, it's very easy to pick at one part of any for-profit company and say, oh, well, it's not pure because of this or not pure because of that. But we're not living in a pure world. You know? <laughs> so, you know, if you really want to be pure, then you can't use an iPhone to do your activism either because the iPhone is is using slave labor and and depleting resources and polluting and all. So exactly. but beyond that, though, I mean, I kind of want to look at what is your North Star, really? What is the the sort of the long-term guiding impulse? And then how do each of the choices that you're making sort of bring us uh, bring us closer to that? So for people who don't know at all, um, Share Tribe is most simply, it's a way for individuals and small businesses and entrepreneurs anywhere to create a sharing platform that's also a business for them right? Indeed. That's a very good description. And I mean, because you guys say on the site, you know, it's software that anyone could use to create their own peer-to-peer marketplace in one day. So we all know of Airbnb as a supposedly, you know, sharing economy thing or uh, Uber. And most of us, at least most of the team human type people, I, I would guess, if we're a type, um, we're suspicious of those platforms because they're really platform monopolies. They extract far too much uh, money from the from the process. And as uh, a non-local giant platforms, they tend to disrupt the neighborhoods in which they're operating without having to really deal with those consequences. And so how does ShareTribe create an alternative to those huge extractive platforms? Yeah, that's a great question. And and to be honest, like also like when we started working on this uh, back in, uh, well, we started the company in 2011 already. And at that point, like the this notion of the sharing economy, it was purely like a great thing in, in our heads that, hey, it's, it's going to be so great. People are going to be sharing more with each other. Like we're going to save resources and, and all this stuff and all these positive elements. And at that point, it was the vision was really just to help more people get into this economy and get them to share things with each other. And then, like as years passed, we saw the rise of uh, Uber, uh, Deliveroo, all these like labor platforms that for some reason were adopt sharing. And then we also also saw Airbnb, these other giants, like when they really grew big, we also saw all kinds of societal problems that they started creating. And and we started feeling more and more that this is not really uh, what we signed up for. Like this is not really the vision for the sharing economy that we thought that we we would uh, we would want to create. And and we started thinking like, okay, what is the 
alternative to this and, and to us it has always always kind of like been this this vision that if instead of these few global giants that extract a lot like if we, instead we would have ecosystem like where essentially there will be thousands of local platforms locally owned uh, locally governed maybe governed by their users that would distribute the profits more fairly then that would really be the kind of like the true sharing economy uh, where we would really get the benefits like the original promise of the sharing economy but we wouldn't really get all these downsides of, of, of that we are now really getting with these giants so that's really the thing that's really the north star to get the the benefits, the promised potential of the sharing economy without all the downsides uh, that it's bringing. So does it actually democratize the sharing economy or is it really just sort of decentralizing the same extraction? In other words, rather than you know one big VC company in Silicon Valley making all the money when uh, we share bicycles, uh, anywhere in the world, is it now just okay? So now there's a smaller business person making money off people sharing bicycles in one town. Yeah. Uh, so well, obviously uh, that that's part of it, the decentralization. But what we really want to see, what we hope to see more, is that more of these smaller organizations would actually be owned and governed by the people who are working through them. So when I felt that when I first heard about the platform cooperativism movement back in 2015, that's when I really felt that, okay, this is the final missing piece of this puzzle. And, and then like when we, I started talking to lots of the founders of these like budding uh, platform co-ops, uh, lots of the people working through them, and many of them were saying that really the, there was so much interest, there was some, so much uh, enthusiasm towards this but they were really facing budget challenges, and in particular, they were really they were people who were idealistic, but they were not really with, really good with technology. So they were essentially saying that they okay, they have spent months, sometimes even years, to get their platform to the same level than these giants in terms of the user experience, which obviously was a big problem. Like if they really wanna kind of like a take the power from them, as we speak. So. Essentially, our central thesis is that if we truly make this technology affordable enough that it's really available for everybody, and if we are ourselves are not really trying to control this, so it's it's like lots of our stuff is is open source, so people can really take it and 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 like even the, uh, install it on their own servers, and and most crucially, they own all of their data, and so. This, uh, the way we see it, it's really also about the ownership of these platforms that truly democratizes them. Right. And it's funny because, you know, Trevor Schultz and I came up with kind of platform cooperativism independently. I was writing my book, Throwing Rocks at the Google Bus, and looking at the term platform monopoly and thinking, well, gosh, what if it was just a platform cooperative? And then I'm starting to write my final chapter of that book about distributism and and worker ownership and great companies like you know Winco or Publix in the U.S., which are essentially worker-owned cooperatives. And then Trevor puts this piece on Medium saying we've got to use platform cooperatives instead of platform monopolies. And the the argument, the case, I guess that 
the imaginary case that both of us came up with was, well, what if Uber were owned by the drivers? So now, instead of just doing research and development for a venture-funded behemoth that's going to one day replace you with robots and leave you jobless what if you owned that company then at least <laughs> at least the drivers are doing the research and development for a company that they um, will continue to own afterwards so they're going to do really what's in what what's in the interest at least of the owners and labor rather than just the owners and the obstacle to that, I mean, what you're arguing is the obstacle to that, at least the obstacle should not be the technology. It's not that hard. Uber, I mean, and certainly if you're even a, a bad programmer like me, I understand that all Uber is, is a GPS mapping program plus a dating program plus a cash register. You know, put yeah. those three elements together, You, there you go. So that shouldn't be that doesn't require a hundred million dollars of venture capital to make that happen, but maybe it does require a little bit more uh, technology knowledge than the average well-meaning cab company wannabe has. So they can go into Share Tribe and basically construct that themselves. Yes, so that's the idea. So we actually have two different products. So one is the easiest and like the most affordable way to get started so essentially without any technical skills in one day you get like a web-based platform up and running so it's more closer probably to something like airbnb or ebay uber obviously is a mobile app uh, constructing those is a bit more complicated so that's kind of like the easiest starting point right so you're in a town and you help people share their lawnmowers. Say. Exactly, exactly. And, and now I we, could have that running yeah. by the end of the day. Exactly. But now we just launched a new, new product that also supports building mobile apps. So basically, it's like a bit more complicated. So what we realized also that this kind of like a plug and play architecture, it's not really good enough that without coding that you could really build all the different types of platforms and really actually achieve the same level of user experience than than these big platforms have and, and what i really think is the key so it's not really enough to make it work and perform the functions but today it's just that people are kind of like a so spoiled that they certainly somehow like expect that it works like they're like they're taught essentially so it's really really kind of like it needs to be intuitive and, and sometimes that can take a surprisingly a large amount of effort to actually build something that well yeah you would think i mean an airbnb or an uber they've been iterating for five or ten years you know with hundreds of of the best developers out there willing to create you know the ideal ux ui you know experience for people exactly and and so basically now we are trying to solve that in a way that we have this new uh, product, which is a bit more complex from the technology standpoint. So essentially, there's this backend that kind of like contains all the standard marketplace features, like you mentioned, like geolocation, payment, messaging between users, notifications, all this stuff like that is needed, like media storage, search, so on. And then we have this set of open source template apps. Uh, today, we have only one. Uh, which is like a web app, but in the future, there will be lots. So there will be one for ride sharing. Uh, there will be one for uh, home services from home cleaning, tutoring, babysitting, so on. There will be some that are more for rentals and, and both for like web and mobile. 
and anybody can build to these, anybody can build their own template, anybody can contribute to these. So the kind of like the idea is that when you want to build your own, you can basically take that as the basis, then you have like maybe 90, maybe 95% of what you need already built in. And then there's some like local things that you need. Okay, this is for our specific context. There's something that needs to be built in. Then you can kind of like fire, uh, hire a developer and like only build those, which right. still cost something, but it's in thousands or maybe tens of thousands and not in the millions. And then by by making these things open source, I could basically look at someone who's already using the platform in a way really close to how I might want to, and then I can just clone what I can clone their model and tweak it for me. Exactly. I mean, which is kind of great. So then, you know, even if they're doing mattresses and I want to do bicycles, I go, oh, the way they're doing it is cool. Look, they're charging instead of per rental, they're doing a monthly fee. I like that idea. And I'm just going to charge this instead of that and look at the way they match their people. I kind of like that. And then you just take it and no one's going to be mad at you, right? Exactly. So the question I have, I mean, is... I'm trying to say this in a way that doesn't, I don't mean this as a challenge to it. I'm in the same headspace as you. So accept that, right? So I'm looking at it more as uh, what are, where are the vulnerabilities in the in this potential kind of decentralized sharing utopia? Yeah. And one of them seems to be the thing that keeps surprising me about the internet is for how distributed it is and for how decentralized it can be that so many of these uh, ecosystems end up becoming sort of monoculture controlled single point monopolies. Yeah. So the, the what you're describing sounds like the World Wide Web sounded to me back in the day, where anybody can make their own web page in their own way. We're going to give them the tools like a WordPress, and you can make your own site. It's your own thing. And for however easy it is to make a great personal site that reflects who we are and has the functionality that I want, 99% of people and businesses are going to friggin' Facebook. They're going yeah. to a recreation of the walled garden that AOL was back in the early 90s that we finally liberated from to be on the real net. And now we're going back to it. All the businesses are going to Amazon's cloud service or even just selling on Amazon. Um, so how... How do you see this this sort of decentralized, distributed uh, uh, universe of small businesses not falling into that same that same trap of of uh, uh, you know that sort of winner takes all conglomeration of companies? Yeah, that that's a great question, and I think it really needs to go back into like not everybody will kind of like just do it for the cause. Like most people, they basically want to get through the day and, and they will use whatever they feel that it's like the best solution to kind of like get them through the day. And, and so uh, what they need are solutions that will help them save their time, save their money, like make them extra money. And, and they are looking for solutions like that. So we, the reason people use these centralized systems, like for instance, Amazon, is because it's simply like, in most cases, cheaper compared to anything like decentralized because of their economies of scale, they can like do really 
really cheap hosting. They can do all these kind of like a services that if you would try to do all of those yourself, it would be really tricky. But I think that in this case, in this decentralized case, it can be the other way around. Still, since like the margins that these services are taking, like the, the cut that they are taking from the transactions, I feel that those are like pretty huge at this point. Like for Uber, it can be more than 20%, like also in, with Airbnb. And, and the thing is that it's also like different from Facebook, I think. Like for instance, Facebook, the way I see it, like people don't really have a strong incentive, I would argue, to switch to a decentralized Facebook. So decentralized Facebook, that's a different topic. I that, That's way more difficult in my opinion. Mm. Like, and, and plus all my friends are there, but like... Right, because that's the very function of Facebook is to create a single source phone book for the whole universe. It's not lending itself towards a decentralized solution the way that, say, looking for lawnmowers in your town, maybe. Exactly. And the same like the Uber case, on the other hand, like I think that's kind of like a really perfect thing. First of all, like these Uber drivers, like some of them, they are really making their entire living. So it's really different from a person who is using Facebook because it's right. not really, they are not paying anything for that. They are not earning anything from there. It's not their money that's at stake. For Uber driver, it's all their money. So if there would be this solution that promises, hey, you actually only have to pay 5% of your revenue to this company. So the prices are actually kind of like a bit higher at the same time. So let's say if Uber takes today 20% cut. So we would mm. instead say- let's Or 50, give, yeah. Exactly. So basically we would say, let's take 5% of that is enough to make maintain the platform. So the rest we can distribute between the customer uh, so the uh, and the rider driver, right? So well, of course it's enough to maintain the platform if they're buying your platform, you know, because it could be three guys, you know, three guys, six hundred dollars rent for an office, and uh, you know, whatever they paid to put together this open source platform is not the same as an Uber that has to pay back, you know, five billion dollars of venture capital that's yeah. been put into something of the same of the same size. I mean, the trick is, you know. If I were going to try to open an Uber competitor that is a nationally scaled or internationally scaled ride sharing app, it might never work because you know no one knows about it. And I don't have millions of dollars to do publicity for people and drivers and everyone to switch over and take a risk when they're getting out of the airport in Stockholm, if they come from South Africa, to open an app, you know, and hope that some driver is part of it. You know, exactly. they know, just like you know that Starbucks will have coffee that won't make you sick. Yeah. You know, you know that Uber, at least there's gonna be someone with a car. So by going local, though, if you're creating a ride-sharing app just for Cincinnati, Ohio, at least you stand a chance for the other people in Cincinnati to know that this is a superior, well, it, it, certainly a superior economic actor um, as far as the town is concerned. You can publicize it on local Cincinnati news if there's still, you know, local news that's not owned by some, you know, evil. Yeah. <laughs> evil thing, but you stand a chance at least of of uh, publicizing yourself through the local grassroots communications channels and and competing at least on the small scale against the generic corporate Silicon Valley player. Yeah, exactly. And that that's kind of like the thesis that when the ownership is really local and when you are not trying to build something that you are even you even don't try to scale like beyond your uh, like own city 
like then you retain all those advantages that come from the fact that you are on your home turf. And then obviously all these platforms, they, they cannot all develop their own technology, obviously. So we are trying to solve that piece of puzzle. There might be like other things. There might be some things related to the uh, governance and, and how, this, how to structure the, the whole thing, how to actually pay all the drivers and so on. So And I think Trevor and others are working on many of those things in general with the platform co-op toolkit. We are also like working together with them them on that. So I think it, this is kind of like the idea that when you offer this set of building blocks and then entrepreneurial minds who want to do things a bit differently can take them, use them in their own cities to create these platforms, then that's, I think, what's the most plausible, practical solution uh, to these problems. Yeah, I mean, it's the solution that the Catholic Church came up with, you know, back in the, uh, the early 1900s, I guess, when, uh, you know, they were asked to respond to a uh, to Marxism, you know, they they came up with something they called subsidiarity, and their idea was that a business shouldn't be any bigger than it needs to be in order to accomplish its task. Yeah, and that if if it it doesn't need to grow for growth's sake, and if someone wants to do that business, offer that service in the next town or the next city over, then they should be the ones to do it. You know, so it's a very it's a very different sort of understanding of how economic works that you that you grow to a certain size and then you are an ongoing sustainable business in that in that area period yeah exactly but it's i mean it's hard or it's hard for people today to wrap their heads around especially in a landscape where for many many companies especially if you've taken money if you don't continue to grow uh, then you die but that's where sort of some of the other stuff that you talk about is interesting, and what you call the the steward a steward owned company such as yourself, you know, is sort of what I used to call a uh, or what used to be called a family owned business. It was really yeah. the same thing, where instead of looking to make a business from which you can extract money later, you're looking at a business that will continue to generate revenues for you and your grandchildren for generations to come. And as you pointed out and I pointed out in my book, you know, steward-owned or family-owned businesses do better than shareholder-owned businesses on almost every metric imaginable, but you know, most importantly in terms of longevity, they survive longer than shareholder-owned companies. Exactly. And I I really think that this is an interesting model and at the same time there's also so the particular model, the steward ownership uh with this name, like it's kind of like a relatively new kind of like a, in a way, like a way to kind of like a brand this certain type of strategy. Mm-hmm. Actually, it differs a bit from the family owned. So it doesn't even transfer from generation to generation. It's uh, the idea there. It's that the company is kind of like self-owned. So it's always owned and controlled by the people actively working there. So if it means that if my children will not like start working at our company, then they also will not ever like own shares. So to be control the voting rights. How will you? What will you give them as their inheritance then? Yeah, well, <laughs> it probably probably needs to be something else. They, but they, <laughs> but they can they can come work at the company. So there will likely be uh, job opportunities for them. And, and like maybe right. if they prove if they prove worthy, <laughs> so to, so to say that then they might uh, might end up uh, being some of the stewards of the company. Right. This is actually it. it the, the model really comes from actually big, uh, originally family-owned companies like Zeiss and Bosch in, in Central Europe. And these families, actually, they, they kind of like saw that they actually didn't want to leave the company just for the families, but they instead want to make sure 
that they basically they're uh, the, the people who control them are the people who really understand the business who are are essentially the uh, working at the business themselves and that's why they created these structures where there's a foundation for instance Bosch is a foundation owned company and that also it's it, the, the steward ownership structure is in particular interesting but it's also it prevents for instance the sale of the company completely so essentially the the voting shares uh, the shares that have voting rights they cannot be sold outside the active team and in practice that prevents the sale of the company and it also prevents the company from co- going public and so where you get with this and then it combines that with another interesting thing which is that actually the returns to all the shareholders are capped so basically uh, you kind of like get a certain return uh, that is a really good kind of like a solid return on the early risk that you take as an entrepreneur or like an, as an early team member, you might have worked like without salary with a super low salary several years. So you get compensated for that, like from the company's profits. But there is a cap. Like for instance, we have introduced this kind of cap for me and my co-founder. And after that cap is reached, 100% of the company's profits from there on will be used to develop the company. And the company's purpose is no longer to generate profit from the shareholders but the the purpose of the company is to fulfill its purpose which obviously this can change over time obviously maybe 50 years from now we might not be talking about the sharing economy for instance today our the mission that we have defined as the purpose of the company is to democratize the sharing economy by making uh, this platform technology accessible to everyone and that that works for now maybe in five or ten years maybe we need to revisit that a bit but anyway, the point is that it's kind of like turning around this idea that the point of the companies is to generate shareholder value. And instead, it create, says that, okay, the point of the company is to create stakeholder value to all the stakeholders of the society. Right. So you could still get capital because you'll you'll say like on the, the places where I see where you're accepting investment, it's a little bit more like a bond or something that a person puts in money and you're telling them, you know, you're projecting to try to get them or you're going to give them five times the amount of money they gave you and you think you'll get it by such and such a date. But that doesn't mean they have shares in the company. It means that they've put a certain amount of money in to help fund this thing and you're going to pay them back five times, which they should be happy with. And then uh, goodbye, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah, so – a bit like that. So actually, they do own shares, but these are non-voting shares. And so mm-hmm. how? So in practice, they work a lot like bonds. So how it works is that essentially in our crowdfunding round that we are now doing, people can buy shares, but these shares don't have voting rights because the voting rights in this two-ad ownership model, they, are, they cannot be outside the active team members. And essentially, the company is bound to use 40% of its profit every year to then buy back these shares for five times the price of the original share. So if you bought a share for 20 euros a piece, this is the price that we are selling them like per share, then our, we are bound to buy them back for 100 euros a piece. Obviously, we need to make enough profit. So it's definitely a risk investment in that sense, like any, any startup investment uh, is. Uh, but essentially, obviously, it's a, there's a bit less risk because we don't need to be a unicorn. Like we can just right. be a traditional, normal, profitable company we need to grow a bit, but we don't need to become ever huge. And we don't need to maximize the profits to kind of like generate enough to pay back our investors. Right. Well, you don't need to exit in order to 
be whole. Exactly. That's that's the kind of like the whole point. And this is what something that we were have been thinking a lot about in the past year or two. That how can we? Is there a way for us to raise money because we don't want to exit? Like we are, we have me and my co-founder have been working on this for ten years now. We started from a research project. We started the company six and a half years ago, but the first lines of code powering all the, our texts were, were written like really 10 years ago when we started in the research project here in Helsinki. And, and we are really looking forward to the 10 years and more to come. And, and that's what really we don't like at all in this current tech startup culture. Well, there are lots of other things not to like, but one of the things is this focus on getting a funding round that pushes you towards some kind of an exit that comes in the, usually in the form of a company sale, like, which essentially means that then, it, then the thing that you build is no longer, you have no control in it and you have to move on. Like, and that, that, that's, that's a point when actually lots of people get depressed. Like, okay, what's my purpose in life now? And the way we see it, we want to be, be working on this thing. Like this is, we enjoy this, like we enjoy the journey. Like this is not, a, not, not kind of like we don't have a particular goal in mind that we would be uh, working towards. We enjoy the journey and we want to be continuing that journey. Right. Well, I mean, that's partly a cultural problem. It's a, a Western cultural problem that, you know, what are you doing this for? You know, rather than doing something for its own sake, you know, <laughs> doing something because you like it, that people start businesses in order to sell them. So then instead of, you know, selling the goods or services that they're actually spending their time providing, they're trying to sell the company that they've started to do that stuff. So they're already, you know, they're already living uh, in meta, I guess. They're living one level outside whatever they're doing. So then they don't enjoy that. So they just ache for conclusion. They just, it's like a, taking a, a, an achievement test. You know, they just want to get to the end and turn the thing in and, and move on without realizing that that's a waste of a life and a company and, yeah. <laughs> and a lot of people. Yeah, exactly. Because the way I see it, like there, there might be like some listeners of your podcast that would say that kind of like there's this thing that capitalism really sucks and like we should like end capitalism, that that's kind of like something like totally evil. And the way I see it, like there's some really good things about there, that, that there's really good things about the thing that you you can be, become like an owner of something and you can take some financial risk and do something that ultimately benefits everyone. And then there's just like some serious flaws that we like the design flaws that in, in the current model, especially when the, when it's fueled by venture capital, when it's fueled by the stock markets. And if you can just kind of like fix those flaws, the same way that we really want to kind of like take the benefits of the share economy, like the effective use of resources, more job opportunities, like efficient uh, technology without the downsides. That the, kind of like we see that the, with the steward ownership, we can in a similar way take the benefits of the capitalism, the effective distributed market system without the downsides of really creating huge income inequality and like a problem for the environment and, and, and all, this, all this stuff. Right. I mean, but that's the trick right now is that the sharing economy, at least with people in the know and, and, and or at least people in the, uh, who are at least halfway there, people who are mostly in my sort of now cynical position, we look at the sharing economy as the new way for large corporations to extract more value from people. You know, how can I make more of my available capital and 
mattresses and things in my garage available to, you know, the likes of an Uber or an Airbnb to make money off me. You know, so, uh, I mean, how do you see the psychology of sharing having shifted since, you know, Shareable's 2011 article about the sharing economy and today? And then how do you sort of uh, reorient people to the more positive possibilities of sharing? Yeah. And that's, that's definitely something that when shareables original stuff appeared in 2011, indeed, like that's when people were only talking about the positive sides, like, and, and really it's the, then people were saying that uh, sharing is the new owning and no, soon you no longer need to own stuff. And then, and then we saw the rise of Airbnb becoming really huge. We saw Uber, we saw Deliveroo, we saw TaskRabbit. And then, and I, I think as as we saw the problems, then uh, to oppose that, and then then came the platform co-op movement, and then came the slogan that actually maybe we should say that owning is the new sharing. So basically, <laughs> it's it, it kind of like which I really like this is Nathan uh, Schneider's line, and I, I kind of like really really see the point in that to basically to to fix the sharing economy, like to really get that, like we really need to uh, redefine like who owns these platforms, who governs them. And only that way uh, we can really get there. But it's, I definitely expect that it's kind of like a slow, slow transition. And I'm, I, I don't like why I, I see that there's a lot more and more people who are working towards this because there's more and more and more unhappiness towards the way things are. But I, I, I don't try to offer a way that, hey, in a year or two, we will be there. I feel that, feel that it will be a longer road. But somehow I'm still kind of like positive. Like if you look at the history of technology, in a way, like internet itself, it went through a similar transition. You, I mean, you. It used to be this. They were AOL and these other like really big uh, kind of like an AT and T companies, and they really tried to build private internets. So, so basically, you would only have like a internet controlled by a private company. But then came like TCP/IP, all these protocols, open protocols, and the it kind of like break free from the company control. And kind of like obviously similar things, it can be argued that has been happening now with uh, with, with things like Bitcoin and blockchain, like for some some other things. And so maybe I actually was listening to this one talk from this venture capitalist from Union Square Ventures, and they were saying that this is this kind of like a natural cycle of bundling and unbundling that that happens in technology, and that they've seen over and over again. And they really predicted that the same thing will happen also with the sharing economy. Obviously, it's the question of when it will happen. But that at least gave me some faith that, that we can, can really get there. And they thought too, I guess this was Fred Wilson or someone, that they thought that it would, it would unbundle again towards more distributed, uh, distributed control. Exactly. I mean, which is quite positive, you know, because uh, say Tim O'Reilly, on the other hand, would say that because of the power law dynamics of the internet, that everything will end up, you know, owned by, you know, one, you know, one major player or another, Yeah, um, which is the scary part. And, you know, and it's funny, people always uh, say, well, gosh, Doug, you were so positive about things then. Now you're negative and now you're positive and now you're negative. But I guess that's because the, the internet does seem to tilt back and forth between decentralization and centralization or distribution and monopoly. Yeah, totally. Like that's, kind of like really what's happening, for instance, like we, as mentioned, like we would have first, there was this corporate control, and then we would have like TCP, IP, open protocols, email, all the freedom. 
then we would go back into suddenly we would have like all these world gardens and apps and suddenly everybody's on Facebook and or everybody's just using not the World Wide Web anymore, but just like mobile apps. And now, for instance, there's one, one big promise, obviously, from the point of view of technology is the blockchain and the decentralization that comes from there. The other big promise is more like a cultural shift, which comes with the platform co-op movement. And the, I, I think that there are lots of different movements, grassroots things, technology movements that just really need to find each other and, and, and really converge. But I, I think that we are seeing something similar happen right now. I mean, is there anybody using your platform yet for a non-monetary uh, sharing? In other words, for if there's someone uh, who just wants people to be able to babysit for each other's kids, you know, there's no money exchanged, but you put in 10 hours of babysitting, the system records it, so then you can get 10 hours out. Or... Uh, you know, people sharing resources. Is there is there a way to do that on the platform that doesn't you know cost more money than it's worth? Yeah, totally. Like we, in no way, we force the use of money. So you can also just enable free sharing of messages and just basically remove the payment system entirely. Just use it without it. We don't yet have, but we could also have at some point like some integrations to if you want to use like time currency or some right. like alternative community currency. That could also be an option. Some people have asked for that. So we have some nonprofits. We have some social enterprises that uh, that are kind of like trying with that type of model. Obviously, the challenge there is how, uh, because what we see is that all of these platforms, they still need the person who like looks after the platform pretty much full time, sometimes even several people if it grows larger, simply because there's so many of these human communication tasks, like people will have questions they will they, there will be misunderstandings between them like when they interact with there that that just really needs to be and you need to do certain level of marketing you need to do certain level of support so how do if there's no kind of like a payment going on there like if if there's no so how, how do you fund it is it purely donations that's super tricky to in the beginning to get there is it just that people do it voluntarily that can work up to a certain point but then at some some uh we haven't yet seen it really take off in a, in a bigger scale. So there are just like these, these type of questions that we need to answer before that can be truly scaled. Right. I mean, if somebody's doing a, a, a platform with no monetary exchange, what, is it, what does it cost them to use this tool? Yeah. So we have, well, uh, if they use the open source version, nothing from our part, like we don't really charge for that. So we have a, like a similar business model than... And WordPress essentially is that there are certain services that we offer for kind of like a, in a way, this centralized hosting, which obviously brings certain efficiency benefits and also benefits in the sense that you you don't need to touch the code yourself. You don't need to have your own sysadmin, which obviously they, they, they do take some skill. And so if you use these services, uh, then then we charge for that, like monthly fees, uh, essentially. So that's how we, we get the money to, to really build this build the stuff that we are building and to pay our own developers. Now, I know on a, on a certain level, you have, to, uh, you have to maintain an optimistic outlook and an optimistic you know, uh, way of expressing yourself while you know, you're building this story and sharing this narrative and seeking investors and, uh, you know, and cheerleading a, a, a way of being. But you know, that said, what are the, what are the, Things that as you look on the horizon, what scares you 
the most? In other words, what are the greatest threats to us realizing the kind of peer-to-peer cooperative economy that that we long for? Yeah, that's a great question. And definitely, obviously, this is like one vision of the future, but it, it might not be that I have, and it, it might not be what actually happens. We might also, <laughs> lots, lots of other people will say that, no, this is not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the Tim O'Reilly vision. So basically, it's going to get more centralized. And actually, this time, the unbundling doesn't happen. And we also have one example where we haven't really seen the unbundling happening, like the Union Square Venture predicted somehow already kind of like maybe 2013, 2014, like that in social media, we would see this. But there right now, I don't really see that happening. Like it's because that's because of the certain characteristics, there's just such a strong network effect. And obviously, so it's just also like possible that that the way the world doesn't doesn't move into this direction. So there are so many variables. And, and ultimately, it's also like up to people, like how, Lots of lots of people need to buy into this vision. Ultimately, it's really up to up to us, like up to everybody. Like, what do people decide to do? Which also means that it's really just up to storytelling. It's up to communication. It's just about to enough people thinking about these options, enough people realizing these options. I feel that we can all kind of like affect our destiny in that sense. So, I guess like what scares me is that we are not able to. As people, like we don't make the right choices and we don't manage to get these things right, and we end up with a society that is less than optimal. That that's yeah. I guess what I'm most afraid. I mean, it seems to me that even if we go down the wrong path, let's say, or go down the darker path, that the result of that would be such economic inequality, you know, such poverty, such a paucity of means and resources that people would then have to turn to these more local solutions simply to survive. So, you know, in either case, either you usher us, you know, toward, well, with others, of course, usher us towards the happy platform cooperative transition, or um, you just have to stay alive and keep your tools available long enough so that when we are in the very dark place, you know we can uh, at least use you know use what you've got as a as a a, a rope out, you know, a, a life jacket. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of like an essentially also like what we realized in in our early days. We somehow felt like we we really bought into the traditional startup story. We thought we we are going to be the next unicorn. Obviously, mm. all right, at, at some point we re- realized okay, that's not really a goal. That it's it's interesting at all from our perspective or something that we should, we should be reaching for. But also like we really saw that this, to really pursue this particular mission, we need to also like accept the fact that, okay, it, it can take a long time and we need to find like a business model that maybe uh, kind of like if, if things go really well, then, then, then it's really great for everybody, but also it can take more time. So we just need to be prepared and essentially then survive and like find a way to, uh, way, way to kind of like a tribe and like be be patient until we really get there. And I think this is also something that goes kind of like against the traditional kind of like a startup thing where it's really, okay, you, if this is not working right way, the time is not right. This means that you need to pivot. So, right. So you need to do, go do something else, <laughs> else and, and change completely. And that's obviously, that's not at all like what I believe in. I believe in is that the time will be right and we just need to be, be patient and, and, and like work towards that until we get there. 
I mean, do you think part of the reason why you're able to uh, adopt a more patient, less home run oriented uh, mindset is because you're living in a country where, you know, failure doesn't mean becoming, you know, an oxycodone addict living in a motorhome out in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, you have a social fabric, you have a social safety net. Yeah, I, I totally think that that has kind of like a big part of that. Maybe there's also that there's this certain kind of like a level level of trust and, and, and trust in the society and in, in the sense also. And, and also I feel that in general, the culture is here is just in Finland, it's way less competitive. Like it's somehow... For instance, if we think about like how we have been doing running this business from the way we started it, we have always been working on average. There has, has have been like more hectic periods, but on average, I would say working roughly 40 hours a week, taking several weeks of vacation as entrepreneurs. And I feel that if you go to Silicon Valley, that's like pretty unheard of. And, and oh, it would be it would be uh, uh, considered a, a crime against your. <laughs> investors. Yeah, exactly. Totally. It's interesting. I I was surprised to hear you say that, you know, years ago when you started, you know, you kind of had visions of unicorns in your head. Um what and this is maybe a good a good place to to finish as, as well because it's so key, but what if you can remember it, what was really the moment that you shifted from uh, thinking you want, you know, a giant spectacular home run to this this other um, this other vision. I mean, luckily you hadn't taken so much investment that you were, you know, you were still free to make that choice. You know, most companies, you know, most young founders, they take in the ten million dollars in the first month. They don't have the freedom to think. Well, wait a minute. What about yeah. <laughs> what about it? An option other than the home run. But what was it that made you realize? Oh, wait a minute. This is this is the wrong goal. I would rather have a good long term, fun, sustainable company. Yeah, I, I think that there were. I'm not really able to pin it down to any one moment, but I, I can remember a few different moments. One was it the share conference i think this was in 2014 like when i i was at this listening to this panel there was brad burnham from union school ventures and then there was channel orsi and then that's when i first heard about this idea uh, of, of like something a bit like platform co-op so I, I think channel also already was talking about like the co-op co-op model for this and i i was like all right so this is <laughs> this is actually how these businesses should be built and this is this could be an answer to something that has been bothering me for a while about this phenomenon that so far we are purely excitedly talking about this great thing called the sharing economy. So I, I, I think that was really kind of like the one, uh, one point. Uh, I think the other point was maybe also because at, for instance, business-wise, like our company was really kind of like a, growing uh, pretty fast in 2015 and actually not growing as fast in 2016. And that's also like when we had these discussions, all right, do we now need to change to something, change to a different model? Hey, kind of like, and what, what do we do? We need to, do we need to have like faster growth? And that that's also kind of like when we, we had lots of discussions, when we realized that, that we just 
we care more about this particular mission, we care more about this particular thing, even if it means slower growth, like even if it means that it takes longer, we are not going to be pivoting to something else just because it, it would bring more money immediately. And I, I think that was another thing because I, I think that may like the really, I feel that it might be in many cases that to build a unicorn, you just really want need to want to build something like that. And which means that you adjust comp- constantly and you change the new things and new, new ideas unless, until you find one and you're a serial entrepreneur. You realize that we are not serial entrepreneurs. Like we are, <laughs> we are all about like building this one business and, and this team that we built and this culture that we create in the company and all these and these are way more important for us than than finding this model and and maybe maybe we also discovered just in in general that okay maybe kind of that had been with us all along that we really just didn't care about that as a goal like it, it there wasn't really anything there like we didn't really dream of becoming like insanely rich we didn't really dream of became becoming the biggest company in finland or in the world and it's like that so what's there to gain and we realized that all the things we cared about we had those already mm. right so building a business then becomes a way of supporting uh the reality that you want to see rather than you know extracting enough wealth so that you could insulate from the reality <laughs> you don't want to touch. Yeah, exactly. And I, I feel that the, this whole part about like, I really enjoy the Monday morning, like when I kind of like wake up and I wait, I head to the office, like I enjoy this stuff that I do because it feels, it feels meaningful. And I feel this is how kind of like life should be like, that you do something where you feel that, okay, you are using your skills in a good way. You are doing something that is actually useful to people. Hopefully, at least. And, and, but yeah. I, I think the most important thing is that you yourself like believe in that. And this this was the thing that we couldn't ourselves no longer believe that trying to build a unicorn would be the thing that would actually be meaningful and useful. And we feel that the thing that we are doing actually feels more meaningful instead. Yeah. Because once you get to unicorn, that's how you know you've done the wrong thing. <laughs> you can't get those sorts of disproportionate uh, earnings um, unless you're really doing something uh, uh, extractive or exploitative of some other aspect of the world. Yeah. Well, great. Thanks so much for uh, for what you're doing, for being on Team Human. If I if I think up a, uh, a sharing business or... Uh, sharing a, a sharing economy platform i will uh <laughs> i'll come to you i'll share tribe it to uh to the world it's uh certainly from my perspective better than uh trying to brush up on my python which is hopeless <laughs> as it is um, so thanks for doing some of that uh that good hard grunt work for the rest of us likewise thanks for having me it's been a real pleasure Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was Yuho Makonen, founder of ShareTribe. And we'll be back in the basement media squad at Queens College Laboratory for Digital Humanism next week with more of humanity's strange and wonderful efforts at evolution. We are entirely worker and listener supported. You can join the team by subscribing at Patreon. You can also help the show by reviewing Team Human on iTunes. We put a link in the episode description in your podcast player. We're also broadcasting on a few college and community stations. If you want us on yours, please email stephen at teamhuman.fm. That's stephen with a ph at teamhuman.fm. This is Team Human. 
our last best hope for peeps. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 